Hi, everyone, and welcome to Podcast is a Seven Letter Word. I'm Dave Knaus, Director at Seven Letter. Last month, we launched Seven Letter Insight, a public opinion and messaging research offering that gives our firm and our clients the ability to better understand voter and consumer attitudes and develop even more targeted, effective messaging and communication strategies. Today, I'm joined by the head of Seven Letter Insight, Matt George, a veteran research and data analyst. Matt specializes in data-driven messaging research, and he's developed winning campaigns and projects for Fortune 500 companies, entertainment creators, nonprofits, tech companies, and trade associations. I'm also joined by Seven Letter founding partner, David DiMartino, who helped develop this practice at our firm with Matt over the past several months. Matt, David, thanks for joining me today. Matt, you want to give us a, a brief rundown of, of your background, where you've been, and how you've ended up here at Seven Letter? Yeah, sure. Thanks so much. Um, I was previously a partner over at Luntz Global. It's a boutique strategic communications firm that's based in D.C. I think there's offices around the country as well. Uh, there we were, it was uh, a focus on messaging and how specific words and phrases impact consumer or voter behavior. Uh, within my role there, I did both uh, qualitative and quantitative research. So on the qualitative side, it's small sample focus groups. Um, interviews on the quantitative side, it's messaging survey, public opinion polling, and, and mass data gathering. Um, for the past two years, I, I have developed and grown my own research firm, uh, Matt George Associates, and um, I'm really excited to bring that exper uh, experience over to Seven Letter. Um, at Matt George Associates, I was really focused on helping clients blend uh, the art and the science of strategic communications into one offering. Um, and so it was built from the ground up to service clients, uh, mostly in, uh, in on the corporate side of things. So in entertainment, education, um, environmentalism and sustainability and quite a bit of internal comms work uh, throughout a, a variety of different industries as well. So my approach to research is really anchored in honest insights, uh, whether the data that comes back is is good or bad. Um, in terms of like what it does for the client, um, I believe in delivering that in an honest way. Uh, so whether it's good or bad news, you, you get the honest insights. Um, and then everything that I do is also based on research-based results. So it's, it's really understanding how the research supports a conclusion or an insight um, so that you can do or say or act on the, the information that's provided to you. Um, and I'm really, like I said, I'm really proud and, and honored to be working with the team over at Seven Letter. Um, I've already partnered with, uh, with David uh, on a handful of projects, and, and so far it's worked quite well. Yeah, that's right. So, um, yeah, Matt and I have done a, a series of projects uh, in the environmental space, and um, we've done a couple projects with scientists, which is always unnerving. Um, uh, but, but I think the experience that uh, uh, our clients have seen with working with Seven Letter Insight in its infancy here has been very helpful to them as far as um, trying to figure out how to you know, strategize moving forward in this current political environment. Um, I think, I think our, our clients have been impressed with the quality of the data sets and the, and the presentations. And, and we've really done um, a good job, I think, in my own judgment, uh, of helping them um, sort through complicated issues uh, from climate change to SNAP programs to, um, uh, you know, how to talk about electric vehicles in the current context. So um, it's been it's been an interesting ride for the last 13 months while we kind of kicked the tires on Matt um, before bringing him on board. Nice. Matt, 
The uh, seven-letter Insight practice made quite a splash with its inaugural poll. Uh, after the election, Seven Letter Insight fielded a nationwide survey capturing new post-election views and trends. We called it the Seven Letter Insight Voter Priority Survey. Can you talk a little bit about what we learned about the mindset of voters after the election uh, and any key findings you think are, are worth noting? Yeah, for sure. We, we found out quite a bit. Um, our poll was extensive. And for those of you who are listening along, I really urge you to go to the seven letter website um, and download the, the full results. You can, the whole thing is there, the entire presentation is there for you to look at. And in a couple cases, it's gonna be helpful uh, to look at some of the slides uh, as I'm referencing the data because there's some graphical representations there that, that really make uh, the point a lot better than I can uh, just sort of talking about it. The poll was, uh, it's an online poll. Uh, it was with 1,500 respondents and it was fielded from November 10th to November 19th uh, with a margin of error of 2.5%. Um, and again, everyone within that, that sample was, they're, they're all uh, people who voted in the general election. So that's the boring methodological stuff, but the, uh, the, the poll really shone a light on how divided we are. And it's it's gone past the idea of Republican versus Democrat, it's now into the idea of people valuing people from the other party less than they do people from their own party. So we asked the question, um, please indicate your honest feelings about whether you agree or disagree with the following statements about the other party. So Democrats were asked about Republicans, Republicans were asked about Democrats. And you get questions, uh, we had questions like, I have less respect for people from the other party than I did for four, uh, four years ago. Um, on the Republican side, 81% of Republicans have less respect for Democrats than they did four years ago. And on the Democrat side, it's the exact same, it's 77% um, saying that they have less respect. Um, we asked about, is the other side ruining this country? 80% uh, of Republicans say that Democrats are ruining this country. 74% of Democrats say the opposite, that the Republicans are ruining it. And it goes down even to trust. Those are like conceptual ideas, but then we even made it a little bit more concrete as well. We asked, uh, we said, I would be upset if my child turned out to be a Republican or a Democrat. We've got over a majority uh, of both parties uh, responding, yes, that they agree with that. They'd be upset if their child turned out to be someone from the other party. Um, we've got um, over 55% on both parties saying that the other people from the other party aren't as smart as people from their party. Uh, and then the one that I thought was really interesting was we've got, uh, again, over 50% of people who say that they would be less likely to hire someone from the opposite political party from them. So this, it's it's gone beyond just, uh, you know, I'm rooting for my team. It's now I think that people from the other team uh, aren't necessarily as smart or I wouldn't want to be associated with them in any way. And that division is incredibly detrimental to the country. Um, there's a couple of reasons why the, those divisions are, are there, but the one that I think was uh, sort of screamed uh, to me uh, uh, in, in the results was we asked about media credibility. And uh, for Trump voters, 44% of them uh, said that Fox News was the most credible. Beyond that, you've got Wall Street Journal, um, you've got OANN News, um, you've got Breitbart, um, but those are all at around like 10%. Um, it is, it's Fox News far and away uh, as the, the media source that uh, is, is, is viewed as credible and valid by Trump voters. But when you talk to, um, to Biden voters, 
their top response was CNN at 47%, but then there's a handful of, there's, well, there's, there's quite a few actually that are above 20%, some that did into 30% in terms of, of credibility. And so uh, Biden voters seem to be getting their information from a wider variety of sources. So that's gonna come into play when you talk about the media uh, coverage of our poll. The, the one slide that everyone seems to be talking about is this idea of whether or not the election was was valid. Um, we found that 89% uh, of Biden voters think that their vote was recorded accurately. Compare that to only 56% of Trump voters who think that their vote was uh, accurately recorded. And then we asked, do you accept the result? 97% uh, of Biden voters obviously accept the result, uh, but 62% uh, nearly two-thirds of Trump voters do not accept the result. And then we asked, do you believe this election was stolen? And this is the, the infamous uh, data point that seems to have gotten quite a bit of media coverage, um, where it says for Trump voters, and uh, nearly eight in 10 of them said that, yes, illegal voting and fraud stole this election. And it almost flips. 88% of Biden voters say the election results are valid. And that comes back to your source in the media. So if you have uh, President Donald Trump saying, no, this, this election isn't valid uh, because there's illegal voting and fraud. And then if you look at Trump voters media uh, consumption and it's and it's only, it's only it's just on a handful of sites, uh, Fox News, Breitbart, uh, that are supporting that message, why would you believe anything else? Let me just react to what you said. I think it's, um a really great example of the echo chamber that people put themselves in, right? So you've got um, people who self-select their media sources and exclude uh, alternative viewpoints. Um, and in this case, you know, I say, I say alternative viewpoints, but I, you know, the voters that we're talking about, the Trump voters, have excluded any reality-based um, reporting on facts uh, from their stream of information, and they get it from Trump's Twitter feed and Trump's media. And so they hear Trump say it's fraud, then OAN tells them it's fraud, Newsmax tells them it's fraud, Fox tells them it's fraud, so they believe it's fraud. Um, and it's really kind of disturbing, and it, it, it illustrates what the challenge is gonna be for Biden moving forward and trying to reestablish kind of a fact-based approach to governing. Um, there's just massive distrust based off of um, uh, the media bias um, for both sides. I mean, the, you know, the progressives, um, do do similar, though I would argue the diversity um, of their news sources kind of give kind of you end up with a little bit more well-rounded viewpoint of like what's actually happening. Um, so that being said, uh, it's it's an interesting challenge as we move forward. And and just with that one particular statistic, the the, the funny thing is is those same news sources you identified as being the primary um, source of Trump information are the ones who latched onto that particular slide. And I think they missed the point of the data point. It wasn't, as you said, it wasn't that there was any election fraud. It's just that 79% of Trump voters believe it um, because that's what they keep hearing over and over. It's fascinating. Um, beyond that, the poll touched on a number of different topics. Um, you know, my, my, my uh, uh, pet project of climate change the, the information in the poll indicated that there is a, a path forward for, for um, government action on to address the climate crisis moving forward. I think um, the poll reflected that uh, 
the public supports Biden's approach to, you know, investing in clean energy, um, cutting pollution and establishing um, uh, uh, environmental justice across um, federal policy and federal agencies. So I think that's a good sign for Biden. Um, and uh, the poll also indicates that, you know, some of the Republicans in um, the Senate uh, who are holding on to the last vestiges of climate and science denial might find themselves out of step with their own electorate as we move forward. So, you know, not to be, I'm not trying to be hyper-partisan here. This is just what the data is telling us. Um, and I think as we move into 2021, um, you know, the president-elect has outlined an agenda that 80 million Americans now um, supported in that election and in the last election. And I think, you know, he's got uh, lots of political capital spent here to get some things done in that space. Matt, David mentioned uh, the president's Twitter feed. President Trump uh, actually tweeted out one of the findings from, from our, our survey, um, the figure that 79% of his voters um, believe that the election was stolen. Curious what your thoughts are on the current media environment and what it's like as a public opinion researcher to kind of have your work thrust into the middle of a, of a news cycle and a debate. Obviously, on one, people would would look at that number and, and view it as, as David said, is kind of sad that that many Americans can't accept the election results. Another group of Americans of a different political persuasion might look at that as validation for their view that that there was something afoot here in the election. Uh, in such a back and forth partisan political time, what does it feel like to have your numbers put in the spotlight? And uh, and what do you think about the media reaction in general to the poll? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So I, I want to highlight something that David said, because I think it's incredibly important. Um, one of the problems that people uh, have in expressing polling data, and this goes on on pollsters as well, and, and communicating the value of the results, is that public opinion does not equal fact. Uh, we can't, we have to get out of that idea that just because people believe something to be true, that's true. That that couldn't be further from the truth. And so, it, when you have um, the media latching on to uh, you know to focus groups and to public opinion polling as validation of stuff, it's almost sort of like a self fulfilling prophecy, right? So, um, Trump says there's been illegal voting, there's been fraud, and then he points to a poll that says that yeah, my my uh, my supporters think the same thing as validation of that thing that he just said. Well, no, it's, it's, that's backwards. They, they believe it because he said it. You know, Matt, Matt makes really strong points there. You know, the, the one thing I will say, and maybe this is my own media bias showing is, you know, I, I don't equate CNN and Fox on the, at the same level of partisanship. Um, I can see how that's, you know, perceived to be that way by some on the right. But the, the true test of this, I guess, you know, we'll be back here in a few months where I eat my own words here, but the true test of this will be, how does the, the quote unquote left wing media um, cover Biden? Um, we, we can fully expect that the Fox News and, and, and the right wing media is going to just completely harangue the Biden administration, whether they do anything wrong or not. The question will be for the New York Times, the CNNs of the world, you know, do they cover um, the Biden administration critically, which I think we're already seeing a shift to that, like they're complaining about access, they're complaining about him not taking questions. So, you know, if, if all of a sudden CNN becomes the, you know, state media um, outlet that Fox has been for the last four years, you know, 
okay, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll come back here and admit that I was wrong. But I do think that um, a lot of the media is fairly independent and will, and will, will, will cover Biden in a fair manner in the context of like, if they make a mistake, I fully expect there to be on the front page of the New York Times and there'd be some criticism on CNN and MSNBC. Um, but we'll see. Yeah, just one, one final point on that. Um, I told you at the beginning that that we have, as a nation, moved further and further to the right and to the left. We don't understand each other anymore. And in running focus groups, one of the things that I hear very commonly is people on, uh, on the left uh, who are never Trumpers, who are anti-Trump, they say, like, I can't believe that, that Trump is the hill that so many conservatives are willing to die on, right? Um, they, can't, they can't wrap their head around that. But then on the right, Trump supporters, uh, they can't understand why uh, liberal America is so hell-bent against this president that they view as a good person who is making decisions that benefit the country, that has their best interests at heart. Why on earth are these people so so against him? And so, again, it's going to go back to those, so, like, the media sources that give them these different stories. Uh, they live literally in different countries based on the facts. And until we can have that common set of facts to uh, that we can all agree on, it, we can't have any of those conversations. We can't make any of the consensus. We can't um, collaborate with our with our uh, friends on the other side of the aisle. Uh, so that's that's going to be step one. And, and I agree with David. I'm looking forward to seeing uh, the left, what is traditionally been left leaning media uh, serve their role. Yeah, and the one thing we haven't talked about here in this context is the fascinating development of Trump trying to bifurcate the right-wing audience into an even smaller, more insular audience uh, by driving people away from Fox News and into you know smaller, more controllable um, outlets. And the fact that he's considering you know creating his own um, quote-unquote media outlet, uh, Trump TV or what have you, um, to continue to pump. Um, you know, his brand of the truth into to, to the public discourse. So it'll be fascinating to watch. Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about what post-President Trump Washington might look like. It looks like, depending on the results of the Georgia Senate runoffs, that uh, we're going to have divided government once again. Matt, as a public opinion researcher, what are you looking at? What are you trying to understand um, looking at a Biden presidency and the way that 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 folks who are trying to potentially get legislation passed or get their policies enacted, um, how should they be approaching a Biden administration in a divided Washington? When you're talking about uh, what we do with that divided government, we look for areas in the in the surveying where there is some sense of consensus, where we can build uh, uh, a collaboration with the other side. Um, and to be very clear, I don't, with it, with the exception of two issues, I don't think that there was a clear mandate coming out of our polling or any of the other polling that I've seen. And, and here are the two issues that are the exception. The first one is the coronavirus. Uh, they, America wants some response to the coronavirus. Uh, doing nothing and relying on herd immunity is not an option. Uh, where, the, where, we, where we deviate then is on what response actually looks like. Um, and we see uh, in our polling, at least, and this this tracks with other polling I've seen, uh, there is support for financial assistance to individuals, um, to increasing unemployment benefits, 
to, and then also to uh, emergency financial assistance to small businesses. Beyond that, um, it, it sort of gets a little bit uh, divided, right? So even if you're talking about a mask mandate or you're talking about a social distancing mandate on a national scale, at that point, you have a majority of Democrats supporting that, uh, but you have just under a majority of Republicans supporting that. So again, not a not a consensus building issue and certainly not a mandate on either of those things. Now, the other issue uh, is climate change, where I did see uh, overwhelming support for, again, it's doing something. And when you try and define that something, that's where we get a little bit uh, into the weeds in terms of what's going, like who supports what. Uh, but there are uh, a handful of propositions that there is sort of the bipartisan support for. One of them, um, oddly enough, was was with carbon price. And I'll let Dave uh, Dave David talk about that because he knows more about it than than I do for sure. Yeah. So, you know, I think we, we touched on this briefly earlier. I, I do think the, the data shows that um, there's a path forward to do something on climate change as long as it um, focuses on creating economic opportunity, which there's plenty of opportunity to do that uh, through expansion of clean energy. Um, and, 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 you know, we've always seen, we, we do have this question about carbon pricing or, or putting a price on carbon um, or, you know, the way, the way we phrased it, I think, was to uh, hold polluters accountable. Um, and, and we've seen that not just in our poll, but across several polls um, have enjoyed significantly high popularity with the general public. It's actually an idea that was an originally a Republican idea that set up the, um, the way we dealt with acid rain back in the 70s and 80s. Um, and the concept is like if you produce carbon, you pay a, you pay a fee and that money goes to you know, mitigation standards uh, and mitigation programs, et cetera. So it's, it's a fairly you know, generic and basic concept that has strong popularity. The interesting thing is, is do we have a critical mass of moderates in the Senate to get something through because the House could pass it overnight and we can't do it without, um, you know, depending on the Georgia outcome, uh, those two Senate races, it'll be difficult to get something like that through the Senate. But that being said, Biden, you know, has, as we mentioned before, has some political capital to spend uh, on this issue. He's made climate change a central pillar to his campaign in 2020, probably, and actually was the most aggressive climate plan ever from a national political party candidate uh, and nominee. So uh, I, I do think there's hope. Uh, whether or not we get a price on carbon is up in the air, but it, there's definitely be some action on climate, on climate change and clean energy. Um, that'll, you know, boost the economy and protect the environment at the same time. Matt, the 2020 election was another difficult one for pollsters, at least in the media. It seems that for whatever reason, their ability to predict the outcomes of elections seems to be flipping away. Um, we saw it in 2016. We saw it in maybe even a worse fashion in 2020. Curious as a researcher, what do you think is causing these polling errors and how can public opinion researchers like yourself fix some of these problems going forward? Yikes. Uh, that is an incredibly difficult question. Um, and I don't think anyone is going to have the answers to that until we have a full certification of the, the 2020 vote. Um, what I will say, however, is uh, I think that there's actually two issues at play here. Uh, one of them is uh, I'm going to push back on, on your assumption that the 2020 numbers were were off uh, in the first place. So let's talk about how accurate the polls actually were. Uh, the polls uh, 
didn't get it right in 2016. They didn't get it right in Brexit, but they got it pretty close in 2018. Um, and I'm going to argue that they also got it relatively close in 2020 as well. Uh, so even if the margins were wrong, the, the polling averages got the answer right in 48 out of 50 states. So uh, with the exception of uh, Florida, North Carolina, and then Maine's, Maine's second, um, all of the predictions of which candidate was going to win that state came true. And that's isn't that uh, necessary? Like, isn't that what we look to polls to do in the first place? Is to predict the answer. So, if forty-eight out of fifty got it right, um, I would argue that's a pretty good track record for this particular election. If you're going off that really base idea of like, did did you get it right? Um, there were also, in terms of the Senate, there are only rel two relatively close uh, toss-ups uh, that uh, were considered upsets: um, Collins and Tillis. So. Um, there are certainly going to be some examples where that are far outside of the, the margin of error, right? Uh, so Maine second, Wisconsin, Iowa, Florida. Uh, yes, those were, when you're looking at the actual, what the prediction was versus what the result was, they were outside of the margin of error. Uh, but I also think that there's some um, some interesting data to look at in terms of like what what caused that, that margin of error, being outside of the margin of error as well. In Florida, we saw the, uh, there was a pretty bad reading of uh, Cuban-Americans um, in, in uh, Miami-Dade County, right? And so uh, when you multiply that by a couple of states, you get some, some, some of these outliers. But that's what I think they are, is outliers, because uh, the end result was, again, a prediction that Biden would win by 8.4 points or so. Uh, when you look at uh, some of the polling averages, I think Biden's going to end up around 4.5 uh, to 5 points ahead. Uh, and that's within a reasonable margin of error, right? So uh, we're talking about the, the polling getting it relatively right. So what do we have to do then to get even more accurate with, uh, with, with these polls? The first one is in 2016, as you know, uh, the polls were massively off, right? And one of the things that they tried to do was to start waiting for education. Uh, they, the, the polls underrepresented a lot of uh, non-college educated white people. Um, and so a lot of the polls did a better job of trying to account for those people. And they, uh, they started waiting by education, which was, uh, previously hadn't been done that, that frequently. I think what we're going to have to do this time is to really look at what we weight against uh, when we're trying to balance these polls. Traditionally, you look at the election two or four years past, but uh, that is making a lot of assumptions. It's assuming that the electorate is going to look relatively the same that it did uh, as, as it was four years ago or two years ago. And we're seeing that opinions are changing. The electorate is changing at a much more uh, rapid rate, right? And so the electorate doesn't look like it did four years ago. So we can't always just rely on waiting to the past election. That's not gonna work. I think we're gonna have to start to change the way that we conduct surveys. Uh, first one is that we're learning that Trump voters aren't picking up the phone on, on phone surveys. So a shift over to online polling uh, might be necessary, or some type of hybrid, right, where you do half phone, half uh, online, uh, finding different ways to reach these people. Um, I think that we are going to also have to really look at the uh, 
the turnout model as well. So this election was absolutely ridiculous in terms of the, the turnout models. Uh, I don't think anyone could have expected the massive amount of turnout that happened due to expanded voting, uh, expanded voting options uh, as a result to, uh, of COVID, right? Um, I don't think anyone would have expected that both candidates would shatter records for how many people voted for them. Um, and that's, that's something that we're going to have to look at. I don't know what the answer is going to be in terms of uh, rectifying those uh, turnout models because uh, unfortunately they are based on something that is very local to this point in time and also something that's not. So if you, if you try and say like, okay, well, COVID let more people vote. So you wait against that. Well, then what if it's just sort of Trump people uh, were voting for Trump and they voted, they, that's why they turned out or they wanted to vote against Trump. Um, it's very difficult to to make those kind of predictions because we have the, the that, that gigantic variable thrown in this year. What we need to do, though, is stop looking to polls to make a 100% accurate, no flaws prediction of the future. Uh, that is never going to happen. It's also not the, the job of polls. Polls are meant to give us a reasonable suggestion as to what's going to happen. Um, and that's what it is. It's a suggestion. Um, knowing that there is a margin of error on either side of that particular suggestion. So we do need to look at some of the things also that polling did for us in this particular election. Uh, if, for example, we didn't have polling, we wouldn't have known about that blue shift that was going to happen. Right? So uh, as, the, uh, as the results came in, the vote was counted for people who voted on election day, and that was overwhelming, overwhelmingly uh, weighted towards Trump. But because we knew that most people who voted on election day were going to be Trump voters, or the majority were going to be Trump voters, and the majority of people who voted with early uh, mail-in ballots were going to be uh, Biden voters, we understood that as those votes were counting, that the shift was going to be happening. Can you imagine if we hadn't had uh, that insight beforehand and the way that races are called, we sort of like give updates every hour uh, on new counts. If it had, if it, if we didn't know that that was going to happen beforehand and it started to look magically like Trump's votes were actually disappearing as he claims that they are, um, I think people on both sides of the aisle, uh, both Trump and Biden supporters, would have had a lot less faith in this uh, election than, than you know they already might. So uh, polling does a lot of really good things as well. And it got a lot of things right in this uh, in this particular election. Yeah, I think the conversation has been about how pollsters need to change. Um, and it sounds like maybe what you're saying is, you know, they need to continue to hone their craft, understand where voters are. But perhaps media coverage of public polling needs to change, too, because they're they're driving these ideas through to voters that that aren't necessarily the facts. They're just snapshots in time, right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, the I think one of the the worst things that we do as a country is uh, this hour by hour releasing of of uh, of vote results as they come in. Um, it makes it seem like new votes are being cast as as they're being counted. When in reality, that's that's not the case at all. Uh, they're simply reporting on votes that have already been cast. But that that constant updating to make it seem like uh, there's drama, to make it seem like there's something interesting going on, um, that caused this entire problem that we are in right now with with Trump being able to say that there's massive fraud 
um, and, and illegal voting going on in the country. If we didn't have that, this problem would exist to a much smaller degree. Thanks, everyone, for listening to Podcast is a Seven-Letter Word. For more episodes, you can check us out on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, and SoundCloud.